Father, thank you so much for your word. And Father, we pray that as we look at it, um, Lord, would you speak to us by your spirit? Uh, There's things that probably most of us need to be challenged by, uh, convicted of. Uh, Maybe some things that some of us need to be encouraged by. Um, Lord, would you do that as we look at your word today in Jesus' name? Amen. Well, all summer long, we have been looking at the book of Joshua, and we've been talking about how to become people of strength and courage. And, uh, you know, it says four times in chapter one, be strong and courageous. Uh, And yet it might be after eight or nine weeks, however many weeks it's been now. uh, But maybe you're you're like, well, okay, we've been talking about this for a while, but I don't really feel any stronger. I don't really feel any more courageous. Why is that? Well, let me show you. So we tend to think the book of Joshua looks like this or works like this. So here's some drawing. Here's a drawing I did this week, hopefully, maybe. Is it coming? There it is. Uh, I know it looks simple. Thank you. Thank you. It took me a while to do that. The arrow was the hardest part. Um, that was the most challenging thing. But we tend to think the book of Joshua works like this, that it's kind of linear. There's a starting point, and they just moved in a straight line into the promised land. In other words, their advancement was just, it was linear. It was a straight line. But in reality, the book of Joshua looks more like this. It was much more complicated. And it's sort of forwards and then backwards and then there's a time of challenge and repentance and confession and then forwards again and then they make a backward step and then there's a time of confession and repentance and forwards again and this just happens in this pattern all the way through Joshua's maybe not as many turns in the passage as I drew up there but that's essentially what it looks like that becoming a person of strength and courage it actually isn't it's not linear There's forwards and backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards and backwards. But over time, there's forward progress. And so why, after eight or nine weeks of talking about how to become strong and courageous, do you potentially not feel that much stronger, maybe not that much more courageous, if at all? Well, it's because like Joshua and Israel, moving forward into land, we tend to think that Christian growth is like this, that it's linear. But in reality, Christian growth is more like this. And when we can grasp this, when we see this, firstly, we'll know what to do when we find ourselves moving backwards. But also we'll find over time that we take less and less of these backward steps, although in reality we will, but hopefully they'll be less obvious and less painful and less destructive. And so what we're doing today is we're zooming in on one of these backwards arrows, the backward steps that Israel and Joshua take, and then a forward one where God uses it to move Joshua and Israel further forward towards the promised land. And so let's look together at Joshua chapter 9. I'll show you exactly what I mean. We're going to see two things today. Um, and as is often the case, my first point is much longer than the second one, but it's just two points today. Um, we're going to see that Israel goes, and as it follows, you and I go, we go backwards in haste, but we go forwards by grace. So backwards in haste, but we go forwards by grace. Um, now, you know how this goes. It almost always works out that the faster you go, the more mistakes you make. Am I right? The faster you are, the more mistakes you make. The more hasty you are, the less careful and precise you, you, you are as you do things. And so uh, this is a very simple illustration, but every morning of my life for the last 27 years, I've put contact lenses into my eyes. I did the math. Uh, that's 9,855 times. Um, and actually double that because I've got two eyes, one, two, 
Uh, so let me just quickly calculate in my head, that is 19,710 times I put contact lenses in my eyes. But let's just say I'm really good at it. I mean, I'm pretty good at it. Um, and if you, you know, if you do anything 20,000 times, you're, you're pretty good at it. And if you don't wear contacts, you need to know, though, that there's a right way and a wrong way to put them in. There's inside out and there's wrong side, wrong, right side in, I don't know how, whatever, inside out and the wrong way. Um, and so it's entirely possible to, to do it wrong and then they curl up on the edges and they, they just irritate your eyes and you end up rubbing your eyes all day and it looks like you're crying or, you know, on drugs or something. It just, it doesn't look very good. And it's always the case that when I'm in a hurry, I put them in backwards. It's always the case when I'm in a hurry, I put them in inside out because I don't slow down to look, to check. It's actually a pretty simple step. It's pretty obvious when it's inside out on your finger. It's pretty obvious. But when I'm hasty, when I'm hurrying, I just don't do it. Which means it goes in and then I have to take it out, clean it off because I touched it and it's gotten all things all over it, turn it around and then do the exact same process over again. And so when I do it in haste, it takes me longer than if I just slowed down to do it right in the first place. I think we all know how this goes and this is what happens in Joshua 9. What we learn in verses 1 and 2 is most of the western cities in Canaan, they, they band together to make one mega army and they, in order to make a stand against Israel. They're like, okay, this amazing nation is coming. God is fighting for them. I know what we'll do. We'll get as many of us together. We'll make one giant army and maybe we'll be able to defeat them. But there's one city that stands alone, the Gibeonites. And they're like, well, we're, we're too afraid. We've heard the stories and we don't think that our army will be able to stand up against the Lord. And so it says... Uh, in verse 4, that they come up with a ruse. I love this. Uh, if it wasn't so tragic, it would read like the script of an episode of I Love Lucy. Uh, I won't reread you the whole story, but you remember how it goes. The Gibeonites are from Canaan, and perhaps Gibeon's the next city on the list, I don't know, but perhaps it's the next, the next location after they uh, defeat Ai. And they head over to the local Goodwill. And they buy some you know, some old clothes, and they get some worn-out sandals, and they pack up last week's leftover crusty, moldy bread. They've stitched together some old wine skins, uh, and they set out on the very, 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 very short journey over to Gilgal, where Israel is camped. And when they get there, they say in verse 6, We have come from a distant country. Make a treaty with us. I actually love the old King James version. It makes them sound like pirates, which is much more fitting to what they're wearing. Here's the old King James version. We become from a far country. Now, therefore, make ye a league with us. <laughs> in other words, in other words, we've come from a very, 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 very long way away. We're no threat to you, so let's make a treaty. That's what they say. And it's in this moment that Joshua moves backwards in haste rather than forwards. Because look at what happens. The Israelites say to them, verse 7, Ah, but perhaps you live near us, so how can we make a treaty with you? Now, if you don't know the story, you need to know that Joshua and Israel, they were commanded by God to drive out all the kings and all the peoples living in Canaan and the land that they were promised by God. They're, supposed, they're not supposed to make a treaty with anyone. They're just supposed to clear it out. And so it's a reasonable thing for Israel to say this to them, to ask them this question. 
But notice that the givingness, they respond with that classic non-response. You know, uh, Emmy asked me this week, um, you know, well, she asked me all the time, what did you have for lunch? And then I just give her a non-response because I don't want her to know what I ate. Okay, so we know how to do this. Uh, They don't say anything. I'm sorry, now you know, Emmy, you know the trick. Uh, I shouldn't have done that. Anyway, they, they don't say anything about where they're from. They only say, verse 8, we are your servants. So Israel's like, we're, you know, maybe you're from nearby. And they say, oh, we're, we're your servants. They don't say where they're from. And then uh, Joshua then gets involved. And look at what he says in verse 8. He says, who are you and where do you come from? And then their response. And it's so good. Honestly, you can imagine Lucy and Ethel in black and white standing in front of Ricky Ricardo. And they're, you know, it's, the ruse is on now. Uh, verse 9, they answered, Your servants have come from a very distant country because of the fame of the Lord your God. For we have heard reports of him, all that he did in Egypt, all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, Sihon king of Heshbon, Og king of Bashan, who reigned in Ashereth. And at this point, they've now named three countries. Egypt, Heshbon, Bashan, but they haven't mentioned the name of their own. They're avoiding Joshua's question in verse 11. And our elders and all those living in our country, still no name, they said to us, take provisions for your journey and go and meet them and say, we are your servants, make a treaty with us. This bread of ours was warm when we packed it at home on the day we left to come from, to you. Thanks, Lucy. But now see how dry and moldy it is. And these wineskins that were filled were new, but see how cracked they are. And our clothes and sandals are worn out by the very long journey. Now, if you're Joshua and you hear this, you should be thinking two things at this point. Number one, you should be thinking logically, oh, well, if you're from a country that is a long, 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 very distant way away, then you're no threat to us and we're no threat to you. So we don't need a treaty saying that we won't attack one another. So let's have some dinner. We'll find some new sandals for you and some new wineskins. And we'll send you back to where you came from as friends. But secondly, he should be thinking there is no way that we would ever enter a treaty with another nation without first consulting the Lord. There's no way we would do that. And if only Joshua did that. But instead, you get verse 14. This is hilarious. This is actually very comical. The Israelites sampled their provisions, you know, to check out how old they are. And then it's tragic. But did not inquire of the Lord. But did not inquire of the Lord. But did not inquire of the Lord. And talk about moving backwards in haste. Verse 14 says everything you need to know. They sampled the moldy bread and the old wine, but they didn't inquire of the Lord. Literally, it says they did not seek the Lord's mouth and seek an answer from him. In other words, they didn't pray. They didn't slow down enough to pray and to wait for an answer. You know, in Numbers 27, we learned that Joshua had, a, he actually had a way of consulting with the Lord through a guy named Eleazar, who's the high priest. And Eleazar, he had this special garment that he wore as high priest. 
Uh, and in the breastplate of this special garment was something called the Urim and the Thummim. Um, th- these were two stones that were carried in a, in a pouch that was attached to the breastplate. And we learn in 2 Samuel that if the leader of the nation needed to know something that he couldn't find in the pages of Scripture, he would inquire of the high priest. He would say to the high priest, hey, can we pull out the Urim and the Thummim? And he would say to him, like, what will happen if I do this? Will it be this or will it be this? And the high priest would reach in to the pouch. And if he pulls out the Urim stone, it would be, yes, go and do that. And if he pulls out the Thummim, it would be, no, don't do that. This, by the way, is probably what they used when they searched all through Israel to find out that Achan was the one who had taken the plunder and hid it. That's probably, the, that's probably what they used. And so Joshua had a way of asking the Lord what he should do. He probably used it within a couple of weeks at the most. He could have asked. And God would have told him. But he doesn't ask. He's too hasty. And so he turns backwards. And in extreme haste, it says, verse 15. Just follow this. They ate the bread. He did not inquire of the Lord. Then immediately, verse 15. Then Joshua He did not inquire of the Lord. Then Joshua made a treaty of peace with them and let them live. And the leaders of the assembly ratified it by oath. And in doing that, Joshua and the whole nation was disobedient to the Lord. This is their backwards move. In haste, Joshua makes a treaty with an enemy. He was sworn to destroy. And in doing this, Joshua and his army, get this. When he did this, Joshua and his army were defeated. Without ever a sword being drawn, a drop of blood being shed, Joshua and the mighty army of the Lord were defeated in this moment. Three days is all it took to wait to find out. It was only three days, it says in verse 16, that they needed to wait to find out just who these travelers really were. So let's go back to this question why you know after eight or nine weeks of going through this why don't we feel stronger why don't we feel more courageous why do we feel guilty rather than righteous and perhaps it's because we haven't yet learned to slow down and to wait and to pray and to inquire of the lord and to wait for an answer Now, this story, this backwards turn, it's really instructive for us to see just how easy it is to lose our strength and courage. In other words, to go ahead and make a backwards turn in our own lives. And there's two things that I want us to see here. First, we turn backwards in haste when we fail to recognize the gravity of every decision and every action that we take. Let's say it again. We turn backwards in haste, firstly, when we fail to recognize the gravity of every decision and every action that we take. Put it another way, every every action, every action of every Christian carries with it permanent and eternal implications. And until we grasp this, we will fail to be alert. And we will find ourselves lacking strength and lacking courage. We will find ourselves making backward step after backward step after backward step. Because it is possible to have a Christian life that looks like this. 
So why, why do we get ourselves into trouble? Why do we make a mess of our lives? Why do we mess up our relationships? Why do we make a mess of our character? Why do we make these backwards turns? It's because we don't recognize the monumental significance of our lives, of our decisions, of our actions. We don't recognize the utter importance of the obedience that we are to give to God and his word. And so if that's true, then what what do we do with that? How do I keep that from being the tone of my life, the direction of my life? Well, if I could introduce a new metaphor, there's one the Bible gives us, and it's this. It's that you always reap what you sow. You always reap what you sow. Uh, This principle is peppered throughout the pages of Scripture. It's all over the Proverbs. It's perhaps most clear, though, in Galatians chapter 6. Here's what it says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. And here it is. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good for at the proper time. At the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Now, there's just so much, that's a whole series of sermons on its own. But this is the nature of Christian growth. This is the nature of what it is to become strong. This is the nature of what it is to become courageous. This is the nature of what it is to become faithful. The image here is of planting seeds. And then what does it say? If you do that, if you plant a seed, what does it say? At its proper time, you reap a harvest. In other words, plant seeds today so that in six months and nine months and a year and two years and three years and ten years, you'll reap a harvest. I uh, watched a show recently on, on Amazon called Clarkson's Farm. And uh, any Top Gear or you know people, uh, what's the other show? Grand Tour fans out there? It, you know who I'm talking about then when I say Jeremy Clarkson. Uh, the rest of you, uh, I don't even know what the equivalent would be, but just think of the least likely person to be able to farm and be successful on the planet. Okay, that's who the show is about. This guy who he buys like a 10,000 acre farm and he's going to make a go at being a farmer. Um, true show. Um, I guess the American equivalent would be like, let's say Kim Kardashian moves to Iowa and buys 10,000 acres and like, I'll give it a try. Uh, That would be the equivalent. Uh, But here's what's amazing. At the start of the series, you have no hope for this man at all. You're like, this guy is going to make a mess of this. There's no way he's going to make it through. Uh, But at the start of the series, he plants his crop. He plants wheat and barley and rapeseed. And then he stumbles his way through episode after episode, making mistake after mistake. And, uh, you know, he has trouble after trouble. and, and, And he just stumbles all the way through, setback after setback. And every episode is just another example of his complete ineptitude at being a farmer. But, but, okay, I'll ruin it for you. When you get to the last episode, guess what happens? He reaps a harvest of wheat, of barley, of rapeseed. This bumbling idiot who can't seem to do anything right reaps a harvest. And that is the principle at work. You reap what you sow. That is it. That's it. 
If you want to know what it is to become strong and courageous, if you want to know what it is to grow as a Christian, if you feel like you keep making backwards turn after backwards turn after backwards turn, this is it right here. Plant seeds. Plant seeds today of faithfulness. Plant seeds today of patience. Plant seeds today of prayer. Plant seeds today of obedience, of self-control, of kindness, of goodness. Plant the seeds today. Little seed by little seed by little seed. And eventually, you will reap a harvest. The one day a harvest of faithfulness, of patience, of prayer, of obedience, of goodness, of kindness, of self-control. That's it. Now, what's the seed Joshua could have sown? It's pretty obvious he could have prayed. He could have prayed. So secondly, the the second reason we turn backwards in haste, we do it when we fail to pray. But what we learn from Joshua is that we should do nothing without first consulting the Lord in his revelation. He had a way of doing it. He wouldn't have even had to wait very long for an answer. Just one question. Should I make a treaty or not? Guy sticks his hand in. There it is. But he doesn't. And so that begs the question, then, what about you? Do you take the time to pray? Do you take the time to inquire of the Lord what his will is? Did you know there's actually a prayer that God loves to answer? He promised that he'll answer it. Uh, and so if you feel like you've had lots of prayers turned down, here's one that God promises he'll never turn down. James chapter 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask. Ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. If any of you lacks wisdom, ask God, and it will be given to you. And so do you need wisdom? Do you need guidance? Do you need direction? Just like Joshua could have prayed, could have asked the Lord, we can ask him. And he promises to give it to us. But you know what James says later on in in his book? He actually says, we don't have because we don't ask. Um, I think I've mentioned him before, but J.C. Ryle, he was the first bishop of Liverpool back in 1880. And he wrote a little book called A Call to Prayer, which is an appeal to Christians to pray. And this is, this is how he starts the book. He starts it this way. He says, I have a question for you. It's contained in three words. Do you pray? And then as you read on, it's a really short book. You can read it in 15 minutes. A little later on, he says, I ask whether you pray because there is no duty and religion so neglected as private prayer. And still a bit further on, he writes, what is the reason that some believers are so much brighter and holier than others? I believe the difference in 19 cases out of 20 arises from different habits about private prayer. I believe that those who are not eminently holy pray little, and those who are eminently holy pray much. Look, the the Christian life is like this. Forwards, backwards, forwards, backwards, forwards, backwards, forwards, backwards. 
But the way we make sure that we're always trending towards Christ, becoming more and more like him as we go along, is by planting seeds along the way. Seeds of prayer, of worship, of confession and repentance. That's what all the turnbacks are. You're going backwards, and what's that turn backwards? Confession and repentance and coming back towards the Lord. Seeds of faithfulness, seeds of obedience. We do it by planting into our lives more and more and more of the word of God so that it roots down so deeply into our minds, into our hearts, into our souls that we become instinctively biblical in our decisions, instinctively biblical in our actions. The Bible actually becomes part of our thoughts, part of our emotions. And so the more that we plant today, the more that we'll harvest later. But this was Joshua's trouble. He didn't plant the seeds so that when the time came, he didn't reap the harvest. However, in spite of that, in spite of that, God in his immense grace still brought Joshua and the people of Israel forwards. He did it by his grace. And that's our second point. Forwards by grace. Joshua and Israel, they may have failed dramatically. But what this passage shows us is that though we may fail, and we may fail over and over and over and over again, though we may fail, our failures never put us outside of God's grace. Never put us outside of his grace. And what we learn in the back half of this passage is God never justifies your sin, but he always redeems it. In other words, he always moves us forward by grace. And what's incredible about this story is that even though God was not consulted, even though Joshua failed miserably because of his hastiness, isn't it wonderful to know that if you know what it is to have failed, To know what it is that, because maybe you've even deliberately excluded God from your decisions and your life altogether. You've actually just pushed him away. Isn't it great to know that he is so kindly and graciously sovereign that he overcomes your failure? Even though God wasn't consulted in this situation, there is no way he could be excluded from it. Because look what happens in the story. After they find out that these men who have said they've come from a country very, 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 very far away, after they find out they're actually Gibeonites from Canaan, and after they find out they made a covenant with people who are actually their sworn enemy, what does Joshua do? He keeps his word. The leaders of Israel say in verse 19, we have given our oath by the Lord, the God of Israel, and we cannot touch them now. And in verse 26, it says this, so Joshua saved them from the Israelites and they did not kill them. And what Joshua and the leaders are saying, here's what it is. They're saying, we will not add sin upon sin. We've already sinned. We're not going to make it worse by sinning more. In other words, we won't take another backward step. We will plant a different seed, a new seed. And God enables Joshua and the leaders of Israel to plant this new seed, and it's a seed of integrity. It's a seed of keeping to their word. To accept his failure for what it is, and then to refuse to do something that would multiply the failure. And here's what this shows us, and I want us to, we need to swim in this truth. 
This is, this is what you need to live in, this truth. Uh, better yet, I want you to take this seed and I want you to plant it down as deep as you possibly can into your mind, into your heart, into your soul, so that it will grow and blossom and bear fruit upon fruit upon fruit in your life. Okay, take this truth. Here's what the last part of the passage shows us. The Lord is able to help us to live with our mistakes through the grace and forgiveness that he lavishes upon us. So you've made a mistake. The Lord, through his grace and forgiveness, enables you to live with it. It is not God's will that we live paralyzed by our past failures. But that we move forward by his grace. And so God gives his people grace in spite of their sin. And right here in Joshua chapter 9, we see the very heart of the Christian gospel. That God gives grace and mercy specifically to those who have disobeyed him. Who have turned their backs on him. And so in spite of Joshua's backwards turn, God redeems it and he moves him forward by grace. And not only, by the way, does God give grace to Joshua and to Israel, but he gives it to the Gibeonites as well. How amazingly, abundantly graceful is God? The Gibeonites, they enter the story as liars and cheats. That's how they come in. And yet, look, look what the Lord does with them. He welcomes them into his covenant people. And so, yes, it says in verse 23, they will live under a curse. But guess what? They also live under grace. They live under the grace of Joshua, who's protecting them from being killed at the very end. It says that's how they were to this day. For 400 years, they lived under this grace, under this covenant. They get to serve in the presence of the Lord, it says, in his tabernacle and eventually in his temple when they build it. That's what they do. These outsiders, these deceivers. And so, yeah, they'll be woodcutters and water carriers, meanful and shameful tasks. But guess where they get to do it? They get to do it in the temple, in the very presence of God Almighty. And this only forces home the point even more that even those who are aliens and strangers to God's people, I mean, even more, think about it, even more, those who enter in, who came in by deceit, even they can be brought into God's covenant people. That he would have mercy on them. And so not only does he have mercy, but as the New Testament tells us, even in the midst of the deceit of the Gibeonites and the failure of Joshua, and guys, this truth, it's almost too wonderful to ponder. It says in the New Testament that God works all things together for good for those who love God and who are called according to his purposes. And when it says all things, I mean, honestly, it's almost impossible to take this on. When it says all things, it means all things. He is able to take even the failure of his people. He's able to take even your failure and weave it together for his purposes and for our good. And so without excusing our sin, without accepting our sin as good, without releasing us from the implications and even the, the consequences of our sin in the present, he is able to weave it all together for our good and for the good of others. And for the glory of accomplishing his purpose here on earth, which is to build the church of Jesus Christ. And so look at me. God never justifies your sin. 
never justifies your sin. But he is never, ever, 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 ever paralyzed by it. You've never done something that God's like, oh, I don't know what to do with that. And he is able to bring about such grace in your life and mine that we need never then be paralyzed by our sin either. And so just take a step back now and look over your life. Think about all the backwards steps, all the backwards turns that you've made. But which one of us has never failed like Joshua? Which one of us has never deceived like the Gibeonites? Who has clean hands and a pure heart? We quote that verse here all the time. And I think I can say with absolute certainty, not one of us has clean hands and a pure heart. And yet God is gracious. He is merciful. He is kind. He is slow to anger. We read it. We said it. Slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness and forgiveness. Because remember this. Joshua is not the hero. No, no, no. Joshua is not the hero. Our Joshua, the Joshua of chapter 9, he's flawed. He is broken. No, there's a greater Joshua to come in the pages of the New Testament. Remember Jesus Christ. I mentioned this before, the very first week of our series. But it's worth saying it again. That Jesus is the Greek translation of the Hebrew name Joshua, Yeshua. And Joshua means Savior. And in Jesus Christ, Yeshua, the greater Joshua, we find the offer of forgiveness and grace for all of our mistakes, all of our disobedience, all of our deception, whatever it is. And when you read about Jesus Christ in the New Testament, you find God in the flesh and in him you find one who is more full of grace. Get this, more full of grace than you are of sin. Because that man, Jesus Christ, he took all of your sin upon himself as he shed his blood and gave his life on the cross. And when he did that, he pours out his grace upon you. And he gives you all of his righteousness, all of his obedience, so that when God looks at you, he doesn't see someone who is disobedient. He doesn't see someone who's a deceiver. He sees his son. He sees one who is righteous. He sees one who's perfectly obedient. And that's what Joshua gets to experience. That's what the Gibeonites get to experience of God moving them forward. Now, let me just wrap this up and put it all back together. What we've seen then is the Christian life, it's not like this, it's not linear. It's much more like this, it's forwards, backwards, forwards, backwards, forwards. And the way we move forward rather than endlessly backwards is solely by the grace of God as he weaves together our mistakes and our disobedience and he renews us and redeems us and moves us forward in his grace. And so as we come to the end, I want to leave you just two very practical points of application And number one is this. Forward progress is much better and much easier if you have a few others doing it alongside of you. It's much better and much easier if you have a few others walking with you. And so, very practically, find some people who will walk with you. Uh, This fall, we're going to have a few opportunities as a church to help you do that. And so when the time comes, take advantage of that. But even now, in the meantime... There's got to be one person, two people around here in this church or other Christian friends that you have that you can say, hey, could you walk with me? Learn to have spiritual conversations with others where you encourage one another, where you challenge one another, where you pray for one another, where you give wisdom to one another. Don't shy away from that.
because forward progress is much better and much easier if you have a few others walking alongside of you. That's application number one. Here's application number two. Plant the seeds that we've been talking about. Plant the seeds down deeper and deeper and deeper. A couple years ago, I was at a conference where Tim Keller was speaking. um, And during the Q&A, someone asked him a question. And they asked a question, something like, how do you help people actually grow as Christians? What does it actually take to see lives really transformed? And what he described is something kind of like this. Um, He said everyone has layers to their lives. And up on the top are are sort of surfacey things, uh, things that are part of your life, but they're not that important. And they could kind of come or go. It doesn't really make as big a difference. Uh, You don't really orient your whole lives around them. But as you move deeper and deeper into the layers, these things become more and more important. Uh, For example, near the top, you might have your hobbies or the foods that you like or the kinds of shows that you like to binge. But as you work your way down, uh, you come to your career. You come to your relationships. You come to your finances. You come ultimately at the very bottom to who you believe yourself to be at your very core. And these are different orders for different people, by the way. Someone might have a hobby that's like way down there at the bottom. And what Keller said is to really see the gospel live, to really grow as a Christian, you have to plant the seeds of truth, the seeds of the gospel, of God's word, down below each layer. And you have to move it further and further down until it becomes your identity. So it ends up looking like this. Because here's what happens. If if the gospel itself, if the truths of scripture, if all of that moves itself below your hobbies, then you start to view your hobbies through the lens of scripture. If it's below your career, below your relationships, you start to view all of that through the truths of Scripture, through the gospel. And that's how you do it. It's pretty simple. And yet it's really hard. That's how you grow as a Christian. So let me leave you with this. You always, you always reap what you sow. And if you want to be strong and courageous when it really counts, when it really matters, then it means today planting the seeds, the truths of Scripture deeper and deeper into your life so that one day it will bear fruit. And the more you do that, the more strong, the more courageous you'll be when the time comes, when you need it. Let's pray. Our Father, we... Thank you for the example of Joshua. Thank you that we, uh, we get to dissect his life and all his mistakes. Uh, I pray he'll forgive us in heaven one day. Lord, thank you that we can see from this what it really is to be free from our mistakes, to be free from our brokenness. And so, Father, I pray that today you would just plant, help us to plant these seeds seeds down a little bit deeper, a little bit deeper, and so that one day we can bear the fruit. Let me ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.